Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, joining me now is Rebecca Bretter, who is a barrister with the Bretter Law Corporation. And we're talking about a group called the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition, and they have filed for a judicial review in federal court. And this is a challenge of violations, they claim, of two sections of the Health of Animals regulations. And Rebecca Bretter, as I mentioned, is on the line. Thank you so much for being with us this morning to talk a bit more about this. Good morning. Good morning. What is at the the heart of this case? Well, you explained it quite well. It's uh, I just wanted to clarify for the listeners what a judicial review is and what this lawsuit is is really about. So to begin with, it's not it's not a lawsuit seeking damages. So the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition or CHDC is not looking for money here. What they're looking for is a declaration from the court to review the ongoing uh, illegal conduct of the CFIA. Of course, we say it's illegal. The CFIA may say otherwise. But uh, what's at the heart of this lawsuit, though, is the mistreatment of horses and um, and the violations of the law. So specifically, the law is very clear. The law says that horses over 14 heads in height, which is basically uh, a large pony, uh, larger than a pony, I should say, uh, can have to be segregated or separated <clears throat> from each other when they're traveling by air. Um, and so in this case, we have uh, so many horses, uh, so we have so much evidence where horses are being uh, shipped uh, contrary to this requirement. So the horses are big, um, they're definitely over 14 hands in height, and they're not being separated from each other. And just so the listener understands why that's important, the reason why this regulation is in place is to protect the horses during travel. So in the event a horse falls um, or, uh, or horses don't like each other, you know, they're separated so that they can't hurt each other. Uh, horses do fall. We already have evidence uh, with horses being injured during flight, horses dying during flight because they weren't segregated. And so all we're asking the court to do is to tell the CFIA, listen, the law is clear. Uh, it, it, it says horses over this height have to be separate separated, so separate them. The other part of the regulation that we're uh, challenging is that it says that, na- uh, that animals have to be able to stand in the natural position. And what we find is, and, and we have evidence since 2012, is that the tops of horses' heads uh, touch the tops of the crates. So in other words, they're not standing in their natural positions. Now, this doesn't happen all the time, but we have evidence that it has happened. And the CFIA is a federal agency that's responsible for our food that probably has one of the most important responsibilities in the country about uh, just ensuring the safety of, of uh, what we consume. Now, these horses, I don't know if, if the listeners know, but um, and I'm certainly learning more and more as, as we're going through this lawsuit, these horses are being shipped overseas to other countries, and Japan specifically, uh, for uh, slaughter to be consumed for human food. Uh, horse meat is considered a delicacy uh, in Japan, and these poor horses are, are being crammed into crates just so that they could be slaughtered as soon as they get off the planes and be eaten. 
And and I think that's what might be surprising to people that that happens. Do we know on, on how big of a scale it is that, that horses are exported from Canada? Unfortunately, the Canadian government is no longer um, uh, releasing the statistics uh, how many horses are being sent overseas. They cite business confidentiality as a reason for not disclosing this information. We do know that in previous years, um, about 5,000 or so horses have been exported specifically for slaughter uh, to Japan. And that number may be more. I mean, I've seen figures between five and 15,000. So um, it, it, the numbers this year, we, we just don't know because of um, supposed confidentiality for business reasons. So do you get the, the, the impression then that, that the horses that are going to slaughter are treated differently on flights than, than say, domestic animals? Because if you fly with a pet, a dog or an animal that you put in cargo, you have to adhere to certain rules similar to that in that the animal has to have a certain amount of headspace. The animal has to be able to stand up and they check that. They, they make sure those are in place. So are, do, do you think the horses are being treated differently because they are going to slaughter? You know what? Realistically, I think uh, I think that we see violations of the law uh, all the time. It's a question of whether uh, whether the person responsible for loading the animals will get caught. And in this case, uh, we caught them, and it's very clear. and And I think the CFIA is is very well aware of what they're doing, but what they're saying is that they have <clears throat> an ongoing uh, or interim policy, as they call it, that uh, they have the right to do that. And what we say is, uh, no, you don't. The law is black and white. It, it's, it's, it cannot be clear, quite frankly. And you have to abide by the law. That's it. It's actually very simple. And I think also uh, the sad reality is that uh, people who are responsible for animals, the CFIA in this case for horses, they probably think that uh, either people don't care enough or people aren't watching and that they won't take this issue seriously. So hopefully what, uh, what this case will bring, in addition to getting the government to actually comply with the law, is to show the government that people do care about animals. And if they are mistreated and if the law isn't followed and, uh, and not only followed, but like just blatantly disregarded, people are going to stand up and speak for the animals and if need be, take legal action in that regard. And unfortunately, animals don't have a voice. I mean, they do, but we don't understand them. Um, we have to stand up and speak for them in court. And if that's what it takes, you know, we're, we're fully prepared to take this as far as possible. Uh, you mentioned this, I think, and, and the Canadian Horse Defence Coalition uh, says as well that they have a photographic and video evidence that shows this. Do you think, is there any chance that the, the CFIA didn't know, just w- was, didn't know that this was happening? No, I, I think it will be, uh, quite frankly, ridiculous if that's what the CFIA will say. Uh, we have uh, numerous freedom of information documents, so documents we obtain through the freedom of information process. Uh, in which the CFIA itself acknowledges, A, it has to abide by these regulations, and B, it has not been doing so for their own reasons, uh, one of them being that they have that interim policy that I mentioned. So they're, they're fully aware what the law is, and they're fully aware that they're not abiding by it. 
And so now we're holding them to it and we're telling them you have to abide by the law. It just does not get any clearer than that. Um, have, have the videos or the photographs been released at any point? Because my, my guess is, like you said, people, people will stand up, people will speak about this, and, and that often happens after they've actually seen the evidence of what's happening. Yeah, well, I urge people to go to the Canadian Horse Defence Coalition. It's a mouthful. <laughs> but again, the Canadian Horse Defence Coalition's website, uh, there is a ton of information there, including uh, photographic and video evidence. So yes, people can people can easily see, they could learn more about the issue. It really is. I mean, the fact that there are supposedly, you know, only uh, several thousand animals being transported that way doesn't diminish the importance of its issue. What's important is that animals are being mistreated, the government is not following the law, and that has to change. Uh, what happens next? As you mentioned, it's a judicial review filed for that. It's not seeking money. Where does the, the legal process go from here? The next step is that uh, uh, my clients have to fi- uh, file affidavits, which is essentially the evidence in the case. Uh, after that, the government uh, will have uh, time to prepare their affidavits, so their evidence. And then after that, we're off to court to a hearing. Uh, hopefully, we should... Uh, Cases at the federal court level uh, could be resolved in a six to eight month uh, time range. It, it sounds like a long time, but in the litigation world, that's actually quite fast. So I'm hoping that we could have this resolved um, by then, if not even sooner. I just, I really hope that the CFIA will will take this case seriously as they should and change your practice. All right, we'll leave it there and uh, follow up with this for sure. Rebecca Bretter, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. All right. That is uh, Rebecca Bretter of Bretter Law. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? You can give the Buzz line a call, 604-331-BUZZ. Uh, that is 604-331-2899. We'll take a short break. When we come back, what the new uh, Apple Watch looks like. We take a look at that when we return. Thanks for being with us. Well, when we think about tsunamis, you likely think about some of the big ones in the past that have been extremely destructive, that have hit highly populated areas. But there are more tsunamis happening out there. And where they are happening and what's causing them is the center of some research. And researcher Brettwood Higman joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Well, thank you. Uh, so to be here. Tell me a little bit what exactly uh, you do as far as looking at tsunamis and where tsunamis take place. Oh, well, um, so my general specialty is looking at recent tsunamis and trying to understand how they, the traces that they leave, that they would, maybe you'd be able to see these traces even thousands of years into the future. So they're usually sedimentary deposits, sand and stuff on shore. And this study concerned a um, tsunami that happened in 2015. Um, where a landslide um, came down the mountain, hit a glacier that had retreated a long ways, and went into the fjord. And when it hit the hit the fjord, it's kind of like you know dropping a bowling ball into the water. You get this huge splash. Um, but in this case, that splash was uh, the highest point we found on the mountainside, where it reached was 193 meters up the mountainside. And then the tsunami ran off from there down the fjord and, and uh, stripped the forest from the fjord walls. And does this happen more than than we imagine, simply because it happens in places where there aren't a lot of people and people might not be witnessing it? Somewhat, yeah. These, um, uh, especially if you're if you're trying to if if you're trying to think of 
the the most dramatic tsunamis. These ones can kind of slip under the radar. This one in particular happened in a very remote place and at a time of year when uh, people are generally not around there, and actually nobody directly witnessed it. Um, and um, there, there were people elsewhere in kind of a, a connected outer bay, but it, they were in a very protected place, and uh, so fortunately the, the tsunami was small there, and they, they didn't actually notice it. The next morning they noticed that the bay was full of uh, uprooted trees and such, but they, uh, they didn't get hit by the wave. And where was that? So the, the bay is Icy Bay, which is um, a bit east of Yakutat. It's kind of on one of the least populated areas of Alaska, which is saying something, because uh, Alaska in general is pretty low population density. Um, and uh, there's a fjord that sticks off the head of Icy Bay called Tan Fjord. Um, it's kind of, if you look at Alaska, there's that straight border between Alaska and Canada running along its eastern edge. If you just projected that south, to the coast across the uh, panhandle of Alaska, then you'd hit very close to here. All right. And what can we learn then from that, from uh, the the fact that it was a part of a glacier that, uh, as you said, kind of like dropping a bowling ball into the water? Well, so this this is a... Um, the, the factors that led to this tsunami um, are are generally factors that are increasing with, with climate change. Um, the big one that, that's really kind of, uh, I guess, the most dramatic effect is that as these glaciers retreat, they stop pushing out against the bottoms of the mountains around them. Uh, we might think of glaciers just sliding past, but they're actually also pushing out on those mountains. And when they stop pushing out, then uh, they stop supporting those mountains and so they can fall in. They also, of course, as they retreat, they expose deep water, which can't have a tsunami without water. And uh, and it, the warming has also led to um, weakening of the mountains as uh, permafrost melts out of those mountains. And so I guess broadly we're talking about something that, w- that we do expect to increase as, as uh, the planet continues to warm. And we are seeing quite a few of these. We don't have awesome data going back 100 years so we can see a really clear trend, but there have been a number of dramatic events in just the last few years. Um, and, uh, and all signs point to this, this being something that will continue to increase. And is it something that we tend to, uh, or maybe have overlooked in the past, in that when you ask somebody, I think, what causes a tsunami, most people would say earthquake? Well, you know, that, so when I first started learning about tsunamis, then people would list four things. They'd say earthquakes, landslides, volcanic eruptions, and meteor impacts. And, you know, we've actually never witnessed a meteor impact tsunami in, in uh, you know, uh, recent scientific history, but we see evidence of them in the, in the geologic past. So scientists have definitely been aware of this kind of tsunami. Um, there's a, there was an event in 1958 in Latuya Bay, which is kind of the event that's been really well studied. And um, what, what we were able to do with this 2015 landslide and tsunami is um, we were able to get vastly better data than we have have ever had on anything like this before. And for example, my own area looking at the, in my own area of study that looking at the deposits, nobody had done that before with one of these, these events. So you know, there's an awareness there, but the level of study is, has been um, pretty light in previous, previous events. And, uh, and there's a concern, a growing concern, that, that the, an event like this might, for instance, impact a cruise ship in Glacier Bay, Alaska, or something like that. And so um, people are trying to put a little more effort into understanding them. 
<laughs> and do you think are we getting a handle on that, or is it uh, is it something like you said that um, that we don't have a ton of research looking back on on the history of it? Um, you know, I, I think in some ways we are. This was this was great progress here. Um, uh, the thing that surprises me is we still don't have like a systematic review of um, of tsunamis like that, or actually of slopes that could produce these landslides, and so potential tsunami sources like this across the world. And um, and there are some places you don't need to necessarily pay much attention to, but there are a lot of places that are potentially a concern, and we um, we haven't been. We, ha- we haven't really looked to see why is the ground cracking and moving. That's often a sign that something might happen um, or, you know, look for this sort of sign. Uh, I was looking at a, a graph that uh, kind of outlines this, too, and you mentioned uh, the Latoya Bay um, tsunami that happened. Was it 1958? And and the size of it, and in comparing it, and until you get a, a frame of reference, it's hard to really picture. But it was compared to uh, being almost the same height as the CN Tower. That's a big tsunami, is it not? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of uh, insane to try. It's 524 meters, so pretty pretty amazing to try to even picture that. And and you know that these. Um, it, it can be a, you know if you're comparing one tsunami to, to another. Um, what exactly you mean by size is actually not necessarily totally clear. Um, so a big tsunami like what happened in Japan a few years back, it has vastly more energy. It, it covers a much greater area. The thing that's much less in that is it doesn't run as high up the slope. And, um, and, and Latuya Bay and Tan are both tsunamis that were kind of in the ideal place to reach really far up the slope. So they you know, if, again, if you picture that bowling ball, the splash more than the so there's there's uh, you actually get the landslide enters and it injects this huge bubble like you know small city sized bubble underneath the uh, underneath the water and it creates a splash just like if you were to like freeze motion a bowling ball going into the water. There's, it's a very similar kind of impact. Now that splash. Um, it, you should it, you should call it a part of the tsunami, but it wouldn't even be called the tsunami wave at that point. It's not really a, a wave. Um, but on the other hand, you, you know, so I don't want to dismiss this either. I mean, the splash in, on that on that uh, uh, Latuya Bay event, it was not just a spray of water going to that elevation. It was enough water that it actually flattened huge old growth trees. So you know, it's a it's a it's a lot of lot of energy there, and um, uh, uh, yeah. So where does your research go from here? Well, right now I'm actually looking at another site where um, there was actually a landslide and tsunami in 1967, a very little known one, um, on, a, on a lake that's now visited by a lot of people. And so we've been surveying, going up on the ridge and finding there are cracks opening up on the ground. And um, the lake, we surveyed the lake it's the, as the glacier retreated. It's opened very deep water. So th- this is um, one example of what I think is is uh, probably the most urgent next step is to look at different sites um, where you see rapid glacial retreat, where there might be permafrost melting in the mountains, uh, where you have deep water, and then especially where people tend to go and, and visit and um, try to assess the hazard in these places and, um, and then uh, do something to mitigate, at least get to the level of, of having... Uh, um, public education out there hopefully have actual active monitoring in place so that we might um, ask people to 
clear out of the area if we see that the mountain has started moving more quickly. Often the mountains above, will, the, they won't just sit there and then all of a sudden fall apart. They'll actually move slowly, even over decades, and then that will possibly in, uh, accelerate just before they fail. So that's kind of the really urgent concern. Um, there are plenty of scientific questions that come in here too, but that's the very, very directly applied question right there. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's fascinating research. Thanks so much for taking some time and chatting with us this morning about it. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, it's good talking. All right. Thanks. Have a great rest of your weekend. Yeah, you too. That is Brentwood Higman. He is a researcher, the lead author of this study that documents the causes and the and the effects of tsunamis in different places. Those couple looking at in the United States or looking at Alaska, but certainly different places around the world. Well, coming up on this program after the seven thirty news, it was a very very hot debate on what to do with the Arbutus Corridor. And now there is a new plan for part of it, one that has a lot of people wondering, what the heck? We're going to talk about that a bit later on in the show. We're also going to... Thanks for being with us on this Saturday morning. Well, an event is taking place a bit later on today. It is part of many events uh, taking place in cities and towns around the world. And joining me on the line now to talk a little bit more about what is going to be happening here is Shirley Samples, an Indigenous rights activist. Shirley, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, what is going to be happening uh, later today? Well, today at 4 o'clock at the Vancouver Art Gallery. We will be having a Rise for Climate event that will be in solidarity with uh, uh, over 800 events taking place worldwide. And it's going to be um, uh, lots of rallies that are going to be having lots of information about uh, changing from the narrative that we have right now to promoting fossil fuel and to change uh, our narrative to jobs for clean energy. And how many people do you know are you expecting at this rally? Uh, we, we don't have uh, exact numbers. A lot of times uh, we, we, uh, we, we're expecting a thousand at least, I'm hoping. Um, we put an ad, half-page ad yesterday in the Star Metro to uh, promote the event. Um, we've had up, uh, the last uh, huge climate march we had, we had between three and 4,000 people attend and we're hoping for a, a large amount of people uh, because pe- it's really on people's mind with what's happened in to our weather recently um, it's brought brought it home that uh, what's happening on the planet is affecting us and in, in a very real way and what do you say to to people that say we can have this conversation and we are having this conversation and moving in this direction at the same time as also continuing to develop our resources and getting our resources to market you know, that's a really good question. Um, how I, I've thought about that question and how I feel about it is to say that we are moving uh, in a way to, you know, help the planet so that we can keep our climate the way it is and not bring um, more destruction to so many vulnerable places on the earth is is the question is how can you build infrastructure, and I, I, um, presu- we're pro- probably presume we're talking about the Kinder Morgan pipeline, that's what's really um, the big issue in the news right now, is how can we uh, build a pipeline that has a life uh, you know, span of, say, 50 to 60 years that will be you know, moving bitumen, which has to be dug up from the planet in, in the tar sands, 
to say that we need to do that at the same time as make real commitment to climate to you know renewable energy and climate change and i often think of what uh, prime minister justin trudeau um you know he 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 says that we need to build this pipeline because the money that we're going to make from it is 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 what we're going to use to do the transitioning because any uh you know most environmentalists will tell you that we definitely will have a transition period we can't just change to to stay off gas and oil tomorrow that is so true so by him saying that he wants to use the money from the pipeline to transition it does does not logical to say that you're going to spend 4.5 billion on the pipeline then up to 10 billion to build this the new pipeline but you think about that 15 billion dollars that is a lot of money that could be used right now in the tra- for the transition it it it's not a logical equation and i i i really would beg someone to explain to me how that that makes sense it it's it's just not uh a logical uh sentence to say and also the other one he says a lot of times we have to balance the economy with the environment you know and maybe in most cases that's true but there are projects that you cannot um be protecting the environment and building a, a project like it's just not feasible the risk is just too great to the environment. Even though the studies, and there are many of them, show that the safest way to move this product, which is going to continue to come out of the ground, is by pipeline. That They say that that's true. But see, as um, this, this action today, Rise for Climate, basically what the message is, is that we need to transition away from fossil fuels. Um, the tar sands in themselves are, is the dirtiest oil. It's the most expensive to uh, get out of the ground. It's also the most expensive. Uh, you have to add condensate to it, which is full of uh, toxic, death-causing um, chemicals. So our our message is that we don't we need to stop the tar sands. And I know that's going to send a lot of uh, you know, ripples through through Alberta, but it's we're in the 21st century. It's time for change. We need to get into the new new economy. And also, the other thing about spending all that money on the pipeline, just think of how much how that money can be used to retrain those workers in Alberta for clean job, clean energy jobs, it's building solar panels. Um, th- that, that's the whole point. Is it, it seems like our country and our our cabinet ministers and our prime minister seem to be on this road that is just totally fixated on building this pipeline and expanding Alberta's tar sands. But that's not in the national interest, and it's absolutely not in the na- in the global interest of the people and all humanity that are unfortunately facing dire circumstances because of climate change. 
Well, I appreciate your honesty there in saying that the goal is to shut down uh, the oil sands because a lot of people won't admit that when clearly that is the goal. It's not just to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline. It's to shut it all down completely. Uh, You did mention solar panels, though, and even though solar panels, the mining for solar panels has cleaned up a fair bit, uh, that is still, that's one of the the most, uh, it's a very environmentally unfriendly process is mining the materials for solar panels. Yeah, you know, I, I I don't know a lot about that process myself, so I appreciate you mentioning that to me. Um, I just I just know that in the home I just bought, I have 21 solar panels. It was on my home when I bought it. This whole summer and through the spring, I am in negative um, energy mode. Like, um, and you know, a lot of people have put solar panels on their on their businesses and bc hydro has just taken away the initiative that they will buy the power back but some people were making thirty thousand dollars a month uh because of the solar energy that they uh they they made so my my um answer to that is Okay, so we have we we like you said. I'm not sure the the statistics or the the what's required. So I will do some research on that. But so we have uh, solar panels that we could make. But then we have a uh, a product like tar sands and bitumen, which is almost one of the most uh, toxic things on the planet. So we're going to move that through all of our precious rivers and lakes and forests in BC. We're going to put it onto tankers, and then we're going to move it through the iconic Salish Sea. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous when you compare the absolute, um, you know, environmental impacts. I find it really hard that there's going to be something worse than the risks of of having a, a huge bitumen spill in our ocean, because it, our ocean will be devastated for generations. All right, Shirley, sorry, we're out of time. We're going to have yeah. to leave it there. But I do appreciate you uh, coming on the show today, and I know you'll be at the rally uh, this afternoon. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, and I encourage everyone to come down to the Art Gallery today. We have a beautiful art um, Uh, exhibit of 80 creatures of the Salish Sea and that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be celebrating our win and we're going to be celebrating the Salish Sea and why we joined together to to make a statement. Oh, sorry, Shirley. Sorry about that. I just cut Shirley off completely. Uh, Shirley Samples, uh, she's an Indigenous uh, rights uh, activist. At four o'clock, they will be uh, at the Art Gallery. That's it for us. Ben Dooley produces this program along with Amir Ali at the controls. Have a great rest of your Saturday.